0: Hey everyone, this week's show's a freebie. Head on over to slash EchoPlex and you can get the members' show for free. Thanks for listening.
1: EchoPlex Media Boo. I'm white and I've got everything I need. No one clutches their presses when they're in a room alone with me. And I can tribe for any neighborhood I please. At any hour, and the police don't do it. A- I leave it alone and fucking flip it. I'm a straight white male in America. I got everything I need. I'm a guy getting paid more than a girl with a degree. And I can walk down the streets after dark. No one wants to raid me. And I can get a girl pregnant and just as easily flee. Like my straight white male dad did to me. So if I see a penny on the ground, I leave it alone and fucking flip it. I'm a straight white male in America. I've got all the luck I need. I've got a pile And I'm walking under ladders and I'm spilling tons of salt But to me that doesn't matter Cause my skin and my gender and my orientation Are the best things to have if you live in this nation I recommend it highly! So if I see a penny on the ground I leave it alone and fucking flip it I'm a straight white male in America Got all the luck I need. Shit's gonna work out for me. Cause I'm a straight white male in America. I got all the luck
0: I need. Hey, welcome to the Intellectual Dollar Tree. We do the show live every Wednesday on Twitch. <coughs> twitch.tv slash twitch.tv slash That's at seven p.m. Pacific. Uh though as it gets hotter and hotter and hotter out, uh, the time might get pushed back to things that sound more like eight and nine. Because uh, summers are coming, and it's already pretty warm uh, this evening. But we'll manage. And um, you can support this project by going to patreon.com slash echoplex or eplex.store. You can join at uh, 5 and $10 levels at both places. Get the same exact perks, except on if you join at eplex.store, you get a discount on some of our items in the shop. Or you can just buy some items in the shop and not uh, join uh, for a monthly subscription, that's fine too. Other ways to support the project are at ecoplex.com slash support. Um, no HK this week. I'm Homo Alono, HK's out on adventures. And uh, there was a, a piece of content I was waiting until I was here by myself for, because it's a little bit down in the weeds and uh, me and HK don't do so well it, together in the weeds. We end up talking past each other. So uh, this is unfortunately this is the Killette Podcast, and this is uh Steven Pinker. This is from twelve days ago, and this is why critics of enlightenment now are wrong.
2: Quillette Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Kay, a senior editor at Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary.
0: If about measuring skulls
2: Podcast. you can do so by going to quillette.com and becoming a paid subscriber this subscription will also give you access to all our articles and early access to quillette social events
0: welcome to the quillette podcast Gillette, social events go, must be the worst fucking thing that just ever happened to anybody Pinker, imagine going to like right a, a skull measuring now, uh, science, skeptics at the humanism, pub and progress it would just be the, the worst
2: book was lauded by the new york times as quote lucidly written timely rich in data." and eloquent in its championing of a rational humanism that, it turns out, is really quite cool. Now, a year later, Pinker has written an essay for Quillette in which he examines and confronts the many reactions that his book elicited. He also spoke to me by phone from his office at Harvard. Here are excerpts from that interview. Excerpts? Were you prepared for the scope of the response that was generated by Enlightenment Now over the last year?
3: I knew that it would be controversial. I had not anticipated uh, a number of the responses. I didn't think there would be quibbling over uh, who deserves to be counted as part of the Enlightenment and uh, that there would be an objection to the very idea of endorsing Enlightenment ideals on the grounds that there are a bunch of different guys during the Enlightenment era who disagreed with each other, therefore you can't say anything about what the, what the Enlightenment ideals were. because
0: Was that uh, one of the criticisms? I feel I, like he's already straw-personing the criticisms. I'll say the same thing. I had taken it for granted that the, uh, that the term
3: Enlightenment ideals or Enlightenment project referred to uh, a set of ideas of reason, science, um, promoting human welfare, finding a basis for uh, politics and morality and meaning that did not hinge on uh, religion. Uh, the fact that if you went back and you looked at what everyone wrote at that time, some people uh, disagreed with others, therefore you can't say anything about uh, the Enlightenment project. Uh, it didn't occur to me that that would be, that people get hung up on that, which they did, some did.
0: Wait, was it it, I don't think are- that was like, I mean, I don't think anybody made that critique that that just because some people like contemporaneously didn't agree necessarily 100% with each other that you can't talk at all about the Enlightenment. That's really dumb. I don't think anybody said that or if he did, if somebody did say that he's like choosing that particular criticism to address.
2: Are some figures you discuss, uh, both in your book and also in, in this article that you've written for Quillette about the response to the book, that do have a genuinely ambiguous relationship with the the Enlightenment? And one of them is Rousseau, who you quote one writer as calling him, uh, if I remember correctly, uh, the cuckoo bird in the uh, the Enlightenment cabinet. Did you have to wrestle with how you were were going to include certain figures in in the book?
3: I didn't. I excluded Rousseau not because uh, I, I was interested in, in gerrymandering the definition of uh, of enlightenment, but just because I was. My my goal was to defend reason, science, and humanism.
0: Each one, right? But those the enlightenment, like humanism, came so long. Humanism, as we know it today, came so long after the, what we call the enlightenment. Like this is this is stupid. The the enlightenment is it happened a long time ago.
3: One of them got, uh, those topics got a a big chapter. Uh, I uh, used uh, enlightenment as a rubric for those together with progress. And and yeah, I didn't count Rousseau and... To those who would say, well, aren't you committing the, the no true Scotsman fallacy that is saying on the basis of uh, the actual uh, ideas that I'm not going to count them as part of the Enlightenment, well, yeah, that's kind of what I was doing, because I don't care about the word Enlightenment. I care about reason, science, humanism, and progress. If you don't like the word Enlightenment, then we'll, we'll use another word. We'll call it secular
0: humanism. Well, call well it, you call called your it book Enlightenment now. We'll call it liberalism. We'll call it the open society. I don't really care about
3: the term enlightenment, because uh, other than that, it conveyed the idea uh, more economically than any of the alternatives. But it's not as if it was a uh, a cult or a creed or a club with an official doctrine. Uh, It's a term that that has a, uh, well, Uh, understood meaning, and that's the sense in which I I was using it. There is no technical definition, and I considered it uh, a waste of time, really, to quibble over who really gets to count as part of the Enlightenment. It's not like the Nicene Creed in Christianity, where there's a set of tenets that you have to believe in if you're a, a true Christian. That's just not what the Enlightenment was.
2: That said, people love to argue about who were the, the five greatest Roman emperors uh, or the greatest, <laughs> the, the greatest scientists. Um, yes. Did you not predict that there was going to be some sensitivity about the way you would treat certain thinkers?
3: I didn't think that that would be as big a deal as it turned out to be.
0: Uh, perhaps because I understood and said that... Look, so everybody no, understands, the Enlightenment, we're talking about the late 1600s through the very early 1800s. This is a time, and we're talking about Europe, by the way. These people are all very Eurocentric in the way they look at history and um, just sort of philosophy or just the world. And so there was like a pretty massive slave trade going on. Um, The eugenics movement was just getting started towards the end of the Enlightenment. Well, the eugenics movement as as we know it, like there was always ideas of eugenics, but like it was starting to become popular in science during this time. This wasn't like a time of secular humanism this was just a time where people were questioning religion as like the thing that should uh, dominate like uh, politics and government that's all it was he's just piling a bunch of his own bullshit onto it things that he thinks an enlightened person would believe and that's fine but that doesn't mean you're talking about the period of time of the enlightenment
3: This isn't a creed, it isn't a club, Uh, it isn't a, a period of time with opening and closing ceremonies, it's a a fuzzy concept, as most concepts are, but it has a well-understood meaning that when when Barack Obama refers to the uh, the ideals of the Enlightenment, uh, he didn't particularly care about, well, are people going to misunderstand him as as referring to Rousseau? He had a meaning in mind. He uh, anticipated that his audience would understand it in a particular way. I think they did, and that's the same way in which I I used it. I was totally aware that, yeah, not every one of the uh, and who wrote in the second half of the 18th century, all uh, agreed with each other. They weren't promoting a single doctrine that I was referring to, but there, there is a clustering. If you, There are common threads across the writings of many of them. Rousseau would be an outlier in this space of, of uh, ideas and concepts. Uh, but, uh, and it, it's, I, am not embarrassed about the fact that I would, uh, exclude Rousseau. I don't think this is a fallacy because it's not the term enlightenment that I care about in the first place. It's the ideals
0: of reason science. But again, you named your book enlightenment now. I don't care about the term. I just used it. Did you just use it as like fucking literary clickbait? Humanism in progress.
2: In the piece that you wrote for Quillette, which is now on our site, Uh, you do engage quite closely with someone who is sort of like an anti-Enlightenment figure in, in the form of Nietzsche. Could you, de- could you describe the feedback you got on your treatment of Nietzsche? Because yes. it sounds like it, it evoked a strangely powerful response among many readers.
3: Yeah, I'm always surprised at what parts of my book get the biggest rise out of readers. And my uh, uh, somewhat irreverent uh, treatment of Friedrich Nietzsche was, uh, was certainly one of them for this book. I uh, mentioned him in the chapter on humanism, largely because you can only understand a concept when you know what it is not. And that's just a good way of explaining what you mean. And there's a danger in endorsing humanism. That is, the moral system that uh, that prioritizes human well-being as the ultimate good. And uh, you know, a natural response would be, well, why do you even have to give that a name? Isn't that obvious? Doesn't everyone believe that? And the answer is no, not everyone believes it. Uh, Aside from the fact that, of course, we have several thousand years of a tradition that says that morality comes from Scripture or from God's dictates, uh, there is a a, a secular non-humanist philosophy, namely that of Nietzsche, which is that feats of heroic greatness are what matter, and the well-being of men, women, and children is uh, uh, is, is dispensable. It's, it's just a justification of slaves uh, out of power to try to look after their own interests, but that we should forget about uh, overall human welfare, about a worldwide longevity and infant mortality and uh, and, and prosperity—that's uh, not what morality consists of. It consists of uh, Beethoven and Napoleon and uh, great geniuses achieving... achieved. Well, that's just an elitist of, uh, I- I- immortal value.
0: There have so, always been elitists.
3: That's that's not humanism. And you might say, well, who? Why even distinguish it? Who could? Really prioritize works of heroic greatness over the uh, health and happiness of, uh, of, of individual humans? And the answer is well, not only people who've had a pretty big impact in history, like the fascists, like the Nazis, like the Bolsheviks, but a surprising number of intellectuals and artists think that, uh, as, as the 1960s uh, bumper sticker put it, Nietzsche is Peachy. Uh, and so, does humanism need a defense? Ah uh, yeah it does make a sense not everyone agrees that human welfare is the ultimate good.
2: I realize I've been mispronouncing Nietzsche's name, but I'm going to continue uh, for the sake
3: <laughs> well yeah <laughs> we can get it to line with Nietzsche if we uh, if we pronounce it along you <laughs> at the end even if it is the German pronunciation I'm gonna,
2: I'm gonna pretend that I anticipated that bumper sticker to justify my my mispronunciation this interviewer is insufferable now that we're talking about this was one of your challenges in writing this book and maybe it's evident in the way people have responded to it that Health and happiness are boring compared to, to 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 heroism to the to the Ubermensch. Is there something that you're you're going against the grain by trying to to convince people in the reality of human progress using numbers when when people really are geared to enjoy stories about human heroism and to aspire to it themselves?
3: Uh, yes, and I think we have to distinguish them. There, certainly, it's uh, more. Uh, uh, engaging and entertaining and thrilling to, to uh, uh, read a biography of Napoleon or to watch a film about a, uh, a conquering hero than to see a bunch of data on how mortality rates have gone down. Uh, on, on the other hand, you can uh, get people to think about things in different ways in, in terms of when they make the leap from great stories to what they care about in real life. And If you remind them that when a, a child dies, that, that's a real child. It's someone's child. Imagine it was your child. Uh, and to have people distinguish um, great fiction, great mythology from what they really want in real life is something that I think people can be convinced to do. And in fact, I even think we've, we've seen that over the course of uh, recent history. Before World War I, it, uh, you had a lot of uh, states people and intellectuals and poets I'm gushing about how wonderful war is. It brings forth heroism and manliness and it's holy and it's spiritual. And they were, uh, uh,
0: uh contrary to our sensibilities. Wait, what many people, is, was that a thing them? before world war one where there, I mean, there were always war stories where people celebrated the heroes of the war and stuff, but were people saying the war was good? Cause it sounds like that's what Pinker's suggesting here. And I mean, I'm not an expert on, you know, late 18, late 1800s, early 1900s literature, but I'm I'm not sure that there was a lot of literature out there, like just saying, oh, war is great. It makes heroes. That sounds, it sounds incorrect, or it sounds maybe like an oversimplification or like a straw, like a straw personing of like what people were saying, but also world war one was fucking horrific. And if anybody thought that war was heroic or noble or whatever, world war one would have disabused them of that notion for sure
3: it could be nothing more immoral than uh than peace because peace was Decadent, and people would become selfish and lazy and uh, effeminate. They they would live in in bovine content, as as someone at the time put it. Well, until World War One happened, and then you just saw the massive carnage, a generation of young men wiped out, and people started to have second thoughts that maybe this this uh, image, this stereotype of the the uh, the hero, courageously meeting death, well, when it comes to your eighteen-year-old son getting um, machine gun to bits for no discernible purpose. Well, maybe we should rethink whether hero stories are our best guide to to how we should live our lives. So there can be a shift, even though I, I agree with you. Certainly, hero story. There is a part of us that responds to the uh, the image of the hero, but we can rethink what that actually means in people's lives.
2: In your piece that you wrote for Quillette, and and, and certainly in your book, you use a lot of graphs. And uh, I, I think at one point I, I, you mentioned there were 75 graphs in your book. Could, mm-hmm. you, could you comment a little bit on how effective that sort of thing is in communicating the sheer magnitude of the improvements in people's lives?
0: Well, I've long uh, been partial to, to graphs. Part of it is my own uh, research. The graphs are real good if you want to misrepresent data because it just like how are you going to zoom on the x-axis? How are you going to zoom on the y-axis? Where are Basically, how are you going to zoom in on the graph? If I wanted to push a narrative with numbers, I would use a lot of graphs. Because you could, like, just an example is if somebody wants to be like, oh, look, this stock is diving, and I'm using a stock example because that's, like, the most common graph I've been seeing lately, uh, mostly because of uh, Anheuser-Busch. Well, you zoom all the way in on the x-axis, so, like, the bottom of the x-axis is, like, 22, and the top of the x-axis is 25. Well, if it drops from 24 and a half to 23 rather quickly, it looks like the thing is in free fall. But then you zoom out on the graph and you're like, oh, ain't shit. Visual cognition that I think that, uh, that, that we are primates. A third of our brain is devoted to vision. And uh, if you can appreciate. Oh, it's a third of our brain devoted to, to vision. What does that mean? Like, how do you quantify that a third of your brain is devoted to vision? Looking at a line, it can be more compelling than a bunch of words.
3: And that was one of the reasons why I uh, decided to have those those graphs, partly as my own in my own uh, autobiography, I was astonished when I saw the first graphs of what I now consider a, a big story of human progress, when I saw that rates of homicide had plummeted since the Middle Ages in, in Europe. So a contemporary Englishman has about a 35th the chance of being murdered compared to his medieval ancestors. And I first saw that in a graph where the, the cl- cluster of dots just swooped downward, and it just kind of it jumped off the page. It, uh, I thought, wow, I, I never realized that.
2: There was one critique of your book I
0: don't remember the- Do we have accurate murder like rate. Do we have accurate numbers on the murder rate from like the middle ages or medieval time? Like, how do you determine what the murder rate was like that long ago? It's a, I feel like that's a difficult thing to do. I feel like you're relying on like anecdote and literature. If you're going to try to determine what the murder rate was from back then, I'm not sure anybody was keeping detailed records, especially of like the poor of the underclass.
2: New York Times article, but the gist of it was Steven Pinker is so obsessed with numbers, he forgets the value of a single human life. The critique yes. was basically that you're a sort of bureaucrat of progress who is letting the real pain that that individuals suffer from all sorts of things escape you. What can you say to something like that?
3: That, that, that surprised me, and there, there is a, uh, a, a common intuition among uh, Scientists and uh, effective altruists and data-oriented people—that there's that many of our intellectuals and pundits and journalists and commentators are are innumerate. They just can't think in numbers. And I didn't want to say that because it seems so insulting. But uh, kind of our, our worst suspicions about journalists were kind of confirmed by by this review, which tried, raked me for celebrating the. Billions of people who have escaped extreme poverty, and saying, "Well, yeah, but what about that? What does that mean to the guy who, the coal miner who lost his job in West Virginia?" Uh, now, you know, obviously, should care about everyone, including the coal miner who
0: lost. Oh, he also does this thing, and I think it's enlightenment now, where this is a famous thing that Fox News would do. They'd be like, "Oh, well, you know, oh, the people think they're poor, but they have a refrigerator, or people think they're poor, but they have a big screen TV," and he said the like the rate of like extreme poverty has gone down but then like the question is like like how do you determine what extreme poverty is and uh, i don't remember his number but the number was like laughably low i i don't mean maybe they'll bring it up here but i remember that like the metric he was using was like you wouldn't even be you would be uh, uh homeless in most of the united states if you were If your income was that where he put the extreme poverty, like if you even above that, there was a, you know, a good amount of space where you would be homeless in the United States
3: in, in uh, West Virginia. But numbers are, the, I argue, the morally enlightened way of appreciating the human condition because they treat all lives as equal. They don't uh, privilege the, 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 the pretty ones, the most photogenic, uh, or the members of our own tribe. Uh, even if there was a, a trade-off where there were several tens of thousands of American workers who were displaced, but a billion people uh, don't see their children die, don't starve to death, don't uh, choke on uh, cooking smoke, uh, you know, uh, f- afford to send their kids to school, we've got to say, if we're adopting uh, policies, that uh, a billion people uh, with a huge change in their lives uh, are Uh, Are genuinely more important than if you tens of thousands of people have to find a new job. Now, I didn't callous towards those people, but we life involves trade-offs. Policies involve trade-offs. It's
0: like a weird fucked-up. It's like a uh, weird version of the trolley problem. That's like detached from reality, where there's no trolley and there's no real people. Um, Somebody in chat here said that the poverty line that that he used, and I I I think that sounds right, was like a dollar ninety a day. And it's like, yeah, I guess you lifted a bunch of people above extreme poverty, but like, you know, if you live in the, if you live in the United States, Europe, if you live anywhere, actually, I'm not sure that getting up above $1. ninety a day means that you're not still in extreme poverty, man
3: care about a billion people as opposed to uh, 10,000 people. And moreover, people who are living or dying as opposed to people who are having to to, to find new jobs. So numbers matter. Uh, And uh, I I was surprised to find that someone could get outraged uh, by a view of the world that was based in numbers.
2: Could it be said that criticisms such as that constitute a misdirected form of objection to moral utilitarianism? The idea... You know we're all familiar with for instance the i believe it's called the trolley problem where you can sacrifice one identifiable person but you can save many others whose names we don't know Uh, many people do find something monstrous in the
0: trolley problem doesn't have anything to do with whether or not you can identify any of the people by name i've never seen a trolley problem where where there's a little arrow to the one person that you're that that the train's going to run over and be like that's your friend bob (laughs) I've never seen that where it's like, like this guy's like the trolley problem is legitimately just numbers of people. If you don't take any action, it will kill, you know, five people. But if you do take an action, you are deciding to kill one person. That's the trolley problem. I ain't never seen it at the trolley problem where any of them had names or any of them were your friend. That's that's he's wrong. Unless like there's like, unless the trolley problem is based on some, kind of old philosophical thing that I'm not aware of,
2: which is possible. utilitarian calculus when it comes to human lives. Is there some element of that in the objection that people throw at you when you give them numbers, and yet, as journalists, they might be more familiar with names?
3: I think that's right. And um, uh, in fact, my colleague, uh, Joshua Green, has done many studies on the psychology of utilitarian versus more deontological intuitions, including uh, studying people's brain activity when they're reasoning through the trolley problem of uh, w- w- whether it's okay to flip a switch that sends a trolley on a track that would kill five uh, workers as opposed to uh, killing one if it stayed on its current trajectory. Uh, noting everyone's a utilitarian. Wait, that's
0: the trolley problem is the opposite way though. Because by doing nothing, you, you don't have to do anything and you, you kill the least number of people. He has the trolley problem backward
3: in uh, that scenario. The paradox being that if it, if it involves something a little more uh, premeditated, like throwing a fat man over a bridge to block the trolley, seeing five men and people's intuitions.
0: Flipped. What the fuck? Now, now, now you're throwing a fat dude off the bridge to break the trolley. What about the people on the trolley? Are there people on the trolley? They're going to be traumatized no matter how many people the trolley runs over. They become deontologists.
3: Uh, I, I agree with you. I do think that that is a, uh, an intuition that, um, uh, that that's very strong. And I, I discuss in the humanism chapter whether humanism is just utilitarianism and if that's indeed an indictment of humanism. Uh, and... Uh, I think there is a difference between our intuitions in dealing with, uh, with our everyday life scenarios and what we uh, ought to do when we're thinking in terms of policy. Or thinking in terms of what should governments do, what should we do when we make charitable donations, what should we do when we want to benefit people? There are the intuitions that grow up in terms of our day-to-day interactions with our friends and
0: family. Just can't be, it can't be extrapolated. They, they so somebody remind me never to watch uh, the one of these Killett interviews like late at night if I've had like four or five cocktails, because this background with the ocean and shit would probably make me throw up basis of policies that affect millions of people.
3: And in the case of, of uh, global development, it's not as if we're deliberately uh, uh, harming uh, a certain number of people to, to benefit others in a kind of intuition that triggers the revulsion to utilitarian thinking, like grabbing someone with your bare hands and throwing them over a bridge. Uh,
0: Why does he keep wanting to throw people off bridges, though? So it's not even as if that is kind of
3: revulsion uh, enters into uh, th- these decisions. And of course, we don't want to be callous to anyone. So it's not really uh, a license to be indifferent to the, the, the plight of people who still are suffering. But uh, but we do have to think about policies in terms of, of uh, how many people they affect
2: and how, how they're affected. Your book, Enlightenment Now, was published a year ago. And I'm guessing that you finished up the, the final edits on it in 2017, just as Donald Trump was taking control of the White House. How much did the Donald Trump phenomenon and the associated populist phenomenon in other countries, how much did that shape your, your last efforts at writing the book?
3: Uh, it did shape it. The um, Trumpocalypse, <laughs> as I think of it, occurred about halfway through writing the book. And I'd have to rethink uh, uh the certainly the overall tenor. Because before Trump was elected, it was much easier to say that these processes that I was advocating were well underway and they had a a kind of historical momentum, which I think they they still do. But the um, Trump and the rise of authoritarian populists certainly show that uh, that the Enlightenment
0: project needs more of a push. And I yo, the Enlightenment project happened during like massive fucking slave trade. I can't fucking stress this enough. He's not, he either doesn't know what was going on during the enlightenment or he's like just kind of projecting his own, what he what he thinks he wants to see in the world and calling that enlightenment philosophy.
3: Might've thought at the time that it was not already, uh, underway with, uh, a, um, a unstoppable momentum that, There there were people standing athwart the uh, Enlightenment shouting, Stop, uh, halt. Uh, And I I did devote a little more uh, uh, space and time to uh, uh, trying to look forward and ask um, how uh, likely are these uh, aspects of progress to continue because a lot of the Trump policies uh, pushed back at them, such as nuclear. Uh, proliferation, such as global cooperation, such as environmental regulation. And it it made me curious as to where this, uh, what seemed like a a, a, a retrograde uh, ideology, where did it come from? What do you
0: mean where it's always been there? What are you talking about where did it come from? It comes from people like you a lot of the time, dude. You fucking race and IQ weirdo. I I, I then did connect uh, Trumpism
3: to counter-enlightenment uh, ideologies that had arisen in the 19th century. That may sound a little fanciful to talk about the intellectual roots of Trumpism. It may even sound like an oxymoron. Uh, and in fact, one uh, historian of ideas said, forget it, Trump is just pure id. There's just no, There are no ideas behind it. I think that turned out n- not to be true, that Trump d- did have a-, a brain trust of Steve Bannon and m- Michael uh, Anton and uh, Steve Miller, people who thought of themselves as intellectuals. There's actually a-, a petition in support of Trump in the summer of 2016, signed by 100 professors and intellectuals.
0: And but that's they- just 100 professors and intellectuals. That's like nothing. It ain't shit. It's
3: 100. Who are... Absolutely rooted. Aren't
0: there more than 100 professors at just a medium-sized university? Counter-Enlightenment thinking, not excluding Nietzsche,
3: but a, a kind of hero- heroism, nationalism, uh, uh, ethnocentrism, the idea that there's no such thing as an individual. There are just, uh, everyone is a, a Frenchman or an Englishman or a German. Uh,
0: that uh, Notice how it only picked like white people. Exactly. Europeans specifically
3: is a mirage. There's
0: zero sum competition among uh, nations, which are the same as ethnic groups. So these, these are ideas. I don't know how many of them, nations aren't the same uh, as ethnic groups. We live in a multicultural through, world now
3: uh, reading probably zero, but there was a natural harmony between his intuitive way of thinking and, and uh, uh, this, this system of ideas. And I think, think that one way to interpret the revival of authoritarian populism is that it's the, the latest uh, surge in this uh, counter-enlightenment mindset.
2: I'm wondering if I could ask you about Francis Fukuyama, whose book on identity came out last year. It came out after after your book. I have noted there's a lot of uh, similar themes in, in the two books, with Fukuyama tracing everything back to this fundamental idea that humans crave recognition. And that recognition sometimes just can't come through the conventional way that post-Enlightenment societies organize themselves. I don't presume that you've necessarily read Fukuyama's book, but I'm wondering how persuasive you find this idea that there's this atavistic hunger for recognition, which can only be satisfied if you step out of the utilitarian humanistic way of thinking that ultimately advances the success of whole societies
3: well yes and, and fukuyama is certainly relevant because his famous article on the end of history uh, uh announced many people thought prematurely that the uh, motives of political organization endorsed by Enlightenment thinkers, namely liberal democracy, had uh, had
0: triumphed, and the end of history. It, it, it yeah, that was a, that was dumb. The idea that even just kind of standard, kind of boring liberalism had triumphed because the uh it was basically, I think, because the Iron Curtain had fallen, and that the U.S. was the uh like the uh, as what would it, Gorka called it the hyperpower. That was dumb. That was absolutely that was fucking dumb
3: sense didn't mean that nothing would ever happen again, but rather that there would be no um, ideological conflict over the humanly best form of government that we've we found it, it in dumb. liberal democracy. Uh, this was, uh, I think, written off a little prematurely, that uh, the various requiems for liberal democracy are uh, don't actually look at the numbers and how popular democracy can, continues to be and are, are retreating a little bit too quickly in the face of developments in, in Turkey and Hungary and, for that matter, the United States. But one can see that, that uh, uh, Fukuyama himself had, had to absolutely complicate his uh, uh, his narrative based on what's happening. Now, as a psychological claim,
0: I, there is much to Wait, that. why couldn't you just say that it was dumb? Why'd you have to say all that? It was dumb to think that, oh, liberal democracy is one out. We can go home now. I mean, you shut the fuck up. And it's really two claims. One of them is that uh, people have to
3: feel that, that they matter, as uh, my other half, Rebecca Goldstein, has put it in, a, in an article in a forthcoming book, that that everyone has some uh, uh, system of values by which they feel that they are, are significant and worthy of, of uh, respect. The uh, other half of that is that that, the way in which people matter has to be in terms of the glory of the group that they belong to their, their nation, their religion, their ethnic group. There, there's, uh, and I have not yet read uh, Fukuyama's book, I'm looking forward to. Um, I, there's reasonably that there's, a, there's a, a, a fair amount of, of, of variability or plasticity in what people attach their identity to. That and it 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 needn't only be their nation or ethnic group. It could be their sports team, their city, their state,
0: the brand of camera equipment they use. So then it's meaningless. It's it becomes meaningless. It could be that I'm a Linux user and I've attached my identity to that. I mean, I used to attach more of my identity to that. I used to be more strident about a lot of things. But yeah, people are part of all kind of groups, and they sometimes they do get pride but more likely they're going to gain community from the kind of group they're in and to the extent that these groups have a community around them. Uh, I think the need to validate your identity by reference to some group of which
3: you're a proud member is very much part of human nature, but what that group is and how many of those, Those groups there can be is a a, a matter of uh, context and and framing and peer values.
0: No, there can be infinite number of groups that you're a part of that you gain some, you know, some confidence, some self-confidence, some self-worth, some self-esteem from.
3: It needn't be that the only way you feel valid is in terms of how many square miles of territory your country occupies.
2: In your book you focus a lot on variables that that go up and down, that can be measured, that can be graphed. What would you say to the critique that there are certain kinds of threats to humanity that are, are, are so existential that they can't be captured with mere graphs and charts? Some people would put global warming in that category, that we're either going to stop global warming or we're not, and if we don't, whole cities are going to be flooded. The same might be true of antibiotic-resistant bacteria, nuclear terrorism, that these are not threats that are amenable to um, to modulation on a, a gradual up-and-down basis, and that post-enlightenment tools thus far haven't given us a definitive way of tackling these scenarios, especially in the case of global warming. The graph that we have for global warming looks like a hockey stick, and we've known about it for decades, but we can't seem to do anything about it.
3: Well, there, there, there's several issues there. Yeah, I do think that the that global warming is the uh, most severe threat that we face. Uh, we know it's a threat because we're using the tools of the Enlightenment, namely, uh, namely science. Because if you simply walk outside, as as the climate deniers say, well, it's, it's pretty cold today, to put on a sweater, so therefore global warming is a, is a hoax. We argue against that using the tools of the Enlightenment, namely that our equations and simulations and data sets and models uh, tell us about a future that we can't experience with our five senses, but that we had, had better believe because our, our best
0: intellects uh, give us reason to believe it. It's not that this is the great man of fucking history theory. It's not our best intellects. These You know who's doing the work? Fucking People you never heard of. Work a day scientists, people in climate science crunching the numbers. Nobody would ever call them our best intellects. They may very well be some of the smartest people on the planet, but they never get no recognition for it. Some fucking, some tenured professor is going to take credit for all their fucking work. I hate this. I, I know it's like nitpicky and it's kind of off topic here, but I fucking hate this stuff where it's like, oh, well, our best minds are saying this. It's like, well, no, it's the people who've done the work. They don't necessarily have to be the most intelligent or whatever, to the extent that we can measure that it's the people who have done the work, shown their work. And presented their work for peer review, critique, and hopefully replication.
3: So I would, you write that it would be uh, entirely misleading to simply extrapolate from uh, a graph of, of current temperature or even current well-being that uh, that there are uh, non-linearities, including in, in climate, that, that uh, many distributions of events have uh, thick tails in the sense that. Uh, now switching from climate change to, say, the threat of nuclear war, that they, uh, uh, it, it is certainly true that uh, when, uh, because wars are distributed in a distribution that has uh, thick tails, namely that there is a there can be events that are improbable but not astronomically improbable, and they can involve such massive damage that simply multiplying the probability by the damage gives you a misleading impression of the threats that we face again that's and that is a reason not, indeed not to take a graph of war deaths as a direct indicator of the underlying danger and that that's an argument that i made over many pages in, in an earlier book the better angels of our nature based on uh, analyses by
0: oh that book spawned this group called the braver angels and like braver angels people show up at humanist community meetings and just fucking annoy everyone (laughs) that's just been my experience humanist communities atheist are skeptics at the pub meetings that i've been to and stuff you get a couple of those braver angels people there and they're just fucking annoying and i think it i think his the better angels of our nature is the the sort of uh the sort of starting point for that that group the braver angels group
3: Fry Richardson in the 1950s. And and indeed, I think we do have to, to uh, worry about it. It's, it's, it is a warning not to use a, a simple graph as an indicator of the underlying threat. It's certainly not an indictment of, of Enlightenment thinking. Quite the contrary, it is, involves this, these fairly abstruse tools of mathematical analysis and computer modeling to give us a picture of the future and to, uh, even more important, to defy our own intuitions about what will head off the uh, the threat, to direct us toward the actions that really will uh, will minimize it and that 's especially acute in the case of global warming, where our moral intuitions i think lead us uh, uh, astray. Uh, I myself I confess have participated in campaigns uh that are utterly worthless like I post for a poster showing me unplugging my chargers as my little effort for for global warm fight climate change as part of the harvard initiative you know i did it to be a good sport
0: but in a way well that's stupid though like you're you leave your your phone charger plugged in and your phone's not hooked up to it i don't know fucking those little wall warts are pretty advanced now and it's just not sucking any juice out the wall
3: Everyone can unplug their chargers and the plant will still dangerously overheat. That's a case where our uh, intuitions about what the moral thing to do, our numbers tell us, is actually immoral because it will not stave off the threats.
0: No, it's not immoral to do things like it's not immoral to try to personally use less electricity. It's not immoral to personally choose to ride a bike instead of driving a car somewhere because, you know, you think it's better for the environment. It's just not having the impact you think it has, but it's not, like, immoral, it has, like, a negative connotation, like, it's bad. Is it bad to unplug your charger? Why would, Why is it bad? Why is it immoral to unplug your charger? We've got to
3: really pay attention to the numbers and say, what actually will uh, reduce the threat of catastrophic climate change? And the answer may be very different from what our intuition suggests to us.
2: The story that you mention about uh, unplugging your charger as sort of a PR stunt it reminds me of my neighbor who drives across town to get uh, a special kind of detergent. That's better for the environment. <laughs> exactly. uh, but I think a lot of this, a lot of but it, wait, wait, do, what do they not drive across town to get anything
0: else? Are they literally only getting in their car to drive across town to get this kind of detergent they think is polluting less? Are, they're not buying anything else. They're not running any errands while they're, they're just like, i have to go to the uh uh the non-polluting detergent store full that shit's on the shelf next to other shit at the store they're also there to buy lettuce and fucking hot dogs or fucking hamburgers or whatever the shit else it is they're buying there get out of here nobody drives across town like i mean if you run out of detergent and you got to go get detergent i guess maybe you drive across town to get it but that's really come on
2: this a lot of it is encouraged by social media where posturing on behalf of something sometimes gets confused with the real thing I know that you are somewhat dismissive of the apocalyptic warnings that have been made about social media but would you say that social media does promote a more superficial hashtag based approach to confronting some of the existential problems facing our society it's a, it's a good
3: question um, you know I, I would I would not I, I wouldn't say that that's at all I think the problem is is deeper. It's a problem in our moral sense uh, that uh, we are our, our intuitions are driven by the kinds of signals that we tend to use in our social lives to judge people. Who do I want as my uh, ally, a friend? Who do I want in my foxhole? Who do I want to praise? Who do I want to shun? Uh, which is totally um, incommensurate with the challenge that a problem like global
0: warming faces. us. And you, you might be right that social media uh, makes it worse because... why aren't. Okay, first of all, I'm not entirely convinced that the Jonathan Kay, the guy conducting the interview, isn't a, uh, we'll call him a climate change skeptic. I'm not entirely convinced that he isn't, because I know Killett has published uh, articles that are, um, that are telling people that climate change isn't real, or that it's not as bad as people think it is, or that we can't do anything about it. But also what I'm noticing here is that they're like, oh, well, the, the, the solution to it isn't what you'd think and then they don't tell you like what in their opinion the solution is i mean i my my opinion is it's going to take decisive and what some people might call authoritarian action by the governments of the world there are public acts that can be broadcasted the the
3: um i mean the campaign that i uh Volunteered for involved with posters plastered around campus. So the the dynamic is might be worsened by social media, but it's not primarily one of social media. It's really one of an incommensurability between our um, our, our moral intuitions and the uh, challenge facing us. And it's, it's also very much a, a question of our 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 moral and political tribalism that we have certain. Uh, intuitions based, or certain convictions based on whether we consider ourselves green, whether we consider ourselves libertarian, and uh, some of the Answers that are dictated by our membership in a political tribe uh, are, are probably wrong in terms of what will actually effectively stave off uh, climate change. Example being um, acts of conspicuous voluntary conservation, such as unplugging chargers. And,
0: uh, Is that really conspicuous, unplugging shit from the wall? You're at home. Nobody can see you except the other people who live there. Are you putting that shit on the. Are you videotaping that?
3: Versus, say, endorsing nuclear power. Now, it just so happens that that, uh, partly by a way of historical accident, got associated with a kind of right-wing, non-green uh, way of thinking and, and is rejected, I argue, uh, prematurely and irrationally by uh, people who... If they are concerned about climate change, we really should plug in the numbers and see what's going to get us to zero emissions most quickly.
2: I'm old enough to remember Three Mile Island. And my sense was that Western civilization was just getting over fears of nuclear power generation when Fukushima hit. I do try to remind people that it is essentially a, a zero emission fuel source.
3: No, that's quite right. And if you're old enough to remember Three Mile Island, you may—I don't know if you ever saw the No Nukes concert. Uh, one person I spoke to blamed uh, the Doobie Brothers and Bruce Springsteen and Bonnie Raitt for global warming because they turned that—that uh, benefit concert turned an entire generation away from nuclear power. Which, uh, given the fact that people want electricity, more and more people are going to want it. More and more people deserve to have it. Uh, it's much better for them to get it from nuclear than from coal. Uh, and no comparison in terms of the uh, damage to human health, let alone the effect on uh, uh, greenhouse gas emissions.
2: Doobie Brothers surely were history's greatest monsters. I want to. Before I let you go, I, I want to talk a little bit about. The, the very last section of your essay that you wrote for Quillette, which I sense was the closest that you came to maybe anger, although I, I think you're you're a very positive person uh, as you project yourself in, in the way you write. But in the last section of the essay, you analyze the opponents of your book in a way that suggests that they are animated by a kind of uh, sentimentality and professional hubris. You cite examples from the past where, when scientists tried to bridge gaps with the liberal arts, they were sometimes rebuffed on, on the theory that there's a certain purity and romance and, and moral stature associated with literature and philosophy that shouldn't be polluted with a scientific form of thinking. And I got the sense what? that you felt that the reaction to your But What book science was- comes from philosophy? animated by that sort of peevishness that's not the word you use it's the word I'm using but does it make you angry
3: well I you know I try to I think like like any author I uh, experience anger welling up when when there are reviews that I, and reactions that I think are, are unfair, and to the extent that I feel that, that's something that I uh, ought to inhibit and that I try to inhibit. Uh, but, uh, but but you might be right in seeing it leaking through, uh, and it's but it's uh, I hope it's more than that, and that I hope it's also just a diagnosis of where some of the the, the heat comes from on both sides, and I in my. Uh, professional life i've um wondered why i sometimes get attacked by the same people for what seem to be completely different positions so for, just to be concrete uh some people are up in arms over my argument in better angels of our nature amplified in enlightenment now that uh, that the world has improved that uh, violence has declined uh, that war has declined um so so that, that offended some people. Then I wrote a book on, on writing, um, the, the Sense of Style, and that seemed to infuriate uh, a, a number of people, some of the same people, when I suggested that not all rules of prescriptive correct grammar uh, ought to be followed. Some of them are uh, are, are folklore and legends and uh, grandmother's tales, uh, and that the, a lot of the... That's logic- not...
0: That's not like controversial. It's just arguing for the use of slang
3: from, uh, usage from people just doing their best to express themselves, and that a lot of these expert rules are, 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 are nonsense. Uh, so, why, why would those two very different uh, positions tend to rile up the same people? So, I was uh, I, I because was because they say time. that's I the
0: same that. people. They think you're an idiot. They think you're like all. I don't know, what is all hair and all hair and no cattle? It's like all hat and no cattle. Yeah, the same people are generally going to criticize you for the, the things that you write and the things that you say because they're critics of yours hope it wasn't just my own peeve that led me to ask the question,
3: is there some common denominator? You know, maybe it's that I'm just a, you know, maybe I'm, I'm, I'm a charlatan, maybe I'm, uh, uh, my scholarship is meritricious and that's the common denominator. Maybe I'm not the one to judge. I, I think there is something else, and the something else that I think there is, is there is an enormous amount of um, resentment uh, from some cultural critics, humanity scholars, literary lions who are what they see as the intrusion of science into their sacred realm. What? And I uh,
0: I did mention But this guy's a linguist. Like the dude's a linguist. What do you mean the intrusion of like you the dude's a linguist. Yeah.
3: A ferocious backlash that C.P. Snow got when he published The Two Cultures in the early 1960s, where F.R. Leavis, one of the literary lions of the day, uh, uh, wrote a reply that was so venomous that uh, the spectator was nervous about publishing it and asked Snow to indemnify him against uh, pressing a libel suit. That's how vicious it was. And around the same time, uh, an American literary critic, Dwight Macdonald, wrote an attack on Webster's Third International Dictionary. Now, why would a dictionary get uh, a literary critic so up in arms? Well, this was the first dictionary that claimed to be uh, based on scientific principles, on computerized data sets of real usage of theories in linguistics, and uh, he, he he blew a stack. This is just uh, just uh, an unacceptable outrage. So putting aside whatever peevishness I felt and I hope that wasn't the, the main motive it was trying to put my finger on a current of reaction to certain classes of ideas that where I think the common denominator is scientists appearing to be like carpetbaggers by the uh <laughs> um, defenders of the traditional uh territory of the humanities
2: and and just to be clear i don't think the peevishness came out in any explicit form it was just me as an editor perhaps detecting some undercurrents i to the extent it existed i thought it was disguised very well <laughs> okay glad, glad to hear that thank you so much for appearing on the quillette podcast and oh, i'm for- sorry we did that everybody that was crash
0: but stephen pinker is generally pretty boring the thing that's really weird about him is that he, the dude, he's he's a linguist, and that's fine, whatever. Uh, there's nothing wrong with being a linguist. Um, you know, it's a perfectly fine academic endeavor. But then he's like always up there talking about like he's like pretending he's like stealing a scientist lab coat a lot of the time when he's talking about these things. He's like, oh, the sciences, the sciences, the sciences. It's like, dude, you're not in the sciences. It's perfectly fine not to be in the sciences, but it's you're not. You're not the fucking, you're not the the one to go out there and speak for the sciences. Also, not for linguists either. I mean, God. This is just insufferable. I'm really sorry. Um, the show usually goes long, but luckily enough, that was only 40 minutes long. So we are not going to uh, do any more Steven Pinker this evening. That's it for the pod. The pod was short this week, and the content sucked. It was boring. And, um, so what we're going to do is we're going to make the patrons or the, uh, yeah we're going to make the patrons version of tonight's show free for everybody. So I on over to patreon.com slash echoplex, and you'll just see the word freebie. And today's date today's the uh, 26th of April. You'll be able to download the whole video. If, if you're listening to this on the podcast and you get about an hour into it or whatever, and you can check out the post game post games, fun. I chop it up with the chat. Things are a little more loose. The lights are red. I'm drinking alcohol. We have some fun. So. Thanks, everybody. You can find the intellectual dollar tree on your favorite podcatcher. You can follow us on Twitch, twitch.tv slash Ecoplexmedia. Mentioned Patreon a minute ago. The only the other place to support us is eplex.store, where you can subscribe in a very much like Patreon-like subscription, but you also get a discount on any items in our shop. And if you don't want to subscribe there, maybe, maybe buy yourself a hat or something. I ordered myself a hat from there just the other day. Anyway, I'm going to change the color of the lighting in here, change the content of my drink. We're going to move on into red light. This as always at the end of the show is boomers by our good friends at Periscope and I'll see everybody on the flip side.
1: at 9pm it's time to sit back, relax and play conspiracy bingo with Echoplex Media. We've curated the best conspiracy theorists the internet has to offer and turned it into a live bingo game you can play for free with absolutely no prizes but bragging rights. You won't find a live stream like this anywhere else and that's probably better for everyone else's mental health. Tune in every Friday at 9pm Pacific at twitch.tv slash and find our full schedule at EchoplexMedia.com